Uh, let me ask a question here this morning, and that is, um, how many of you have ever been uh, in a cathedral, either here in America or overseas? So a handful of you know what I mean when I talk about a cathedral. So here's the, one of the most famous ones, Notre Dame in Paris. Um, these, uh, these cathedrals, uh, I don't think I have to tell anybody this, even if you haven't been in one, even, even if you've seen pictures of them like this one. Uh, they were uh, designed, these, these uh, structures, these spectacular structures, they were designed to stand out in whatever village or city or metropolis they were in. And uh, they were also, as you entered them, they, they were not only to stand out so that the city would be drawn to these, but even as you went in, they were to draw your attention upward. As you walk into them, that's usually the first reaction people have. Their heads automatically go up, upwards, and they, the, it's a symbol of what these structures were designed to do. They were, de they were designed to draw the city and all of the city's attention upward to the majesty and the awe of God who was worthy of that uh, devotion, worthy of submission. That was the purpose of these. But if you know anything about him, you also know these were very labor-intensive structures. Uh, for example, uh, a stained-glass window in many of these cathedrals are roughly 60 feet tall, some of them. So think about three times the size from here to the top of the ceiling. In these 60-foot stained-glass windows... Most of the time, there was no bigger piece in the stained glass window than eight inches. Imagine how long it took to put those together and the meticulous attention it took to put them together. Uh, stones that were uh, used for the, not only the foundation, but even some of the, the other sections of these cathedrals. Uh, quite frequently, it costs three times as much to bring the stone than it did for the stone itself, just the transportation of it. Uh, logs were brought from all uh, over the place. And you can see it even in something as, as current as what's happened uh, in Notre Dame. Most of you know in two, 2019, uh, there was a massive fire there. And the, the most dramatic moment was when this spire uh, finally was consumed and, and fell over. And so even today, they're, uh, and they're in the process of restoring this. It's taken them a couple years just to get to the place where it's safe enough to work. Uh, 600 tons worth of uh, scaffolding that's been uh, even tailor designed to go into different places. Um, uh, so much work going on. But just the spire alone, they're in the process of, uh, they, they've already done this now. They've collected these trees. These, the trees they're using to rebuild the spire are over 200 years old. Uh, they're hand selected by uh, forest specialists. Uh, they're taken into sawmills, they're cut, they're dried, and all of this process just for uh, restoring just this one spire. Notre Dame itself took over 200 years or up to 200 years to build. Can you imagine a building project in our city that would take 200 years? And that's not because there was a 150-year delay from start to finish in the construction. Imagine building something, and this is when people didn't live as long, that your great-great-great-great-great-grandchild would finish. These were very labor, 
intensive uh, structures and projects. Which brings us to our passage today. Where's he going with this? <clears throat> the work of salvation. We're making our journey through Philippians. We've come to a very important verse. And I know I've said that about so many of these verses. Uh, we've come to this verse that speaks about the great work of salvation. And here's the text. Let me read it for you. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Four words today are going to get our attention. Work out your salvation. And what I want to try and do is bust us out of a tendency to read this verse as though it's talking about me as an individual. Because I want to make the case that that's actually a secondary idea here, not the primary idea. So let me pray and then we'll get going. Our Father, we want to work out our salvation. Not simply because you've commanded us to do it here, but because you are worthy of it, even as we sang this morning. So meet us now in your word, for Jesus' sake, amen. So like anything when you're in the Bible, particularly in a, in a type of uh, literature in the Bible like this, Philippians, which is kind of like a teaching literature, it's different than, say, Ezekiel that's being studied in the 930 hour, which is more uh, prophetic, kind of poetic, apocalyptic kind of literature, they call that. But here, particularly in something that's designed to basically be a simple, instructive kind of document, it's very important to think of context. So when we take words like work out your salvation, it's always a bad idea to take a verse like this and pull it out and just think about this. So I want to make sure we know the context of this. And particularly here, you can see something very important, that in the midst of this command, as so often is the case in the Bible, particularly in teaching sections, God surrounds a command with promises. So next week, we're going to look at that, okay? Next week, we're going to talk about powered by God. But today, I want to talk about working out our salvation, the command part of this. But I want you to know there's a context to this. And so we're going to look specifically at this idea here of salvation. So let me give this to you kind of in the just right out of the gate, a bunch of information that I think is going to help you categorize things. When you see the word salvation in the Bible, it's always about more than a get-out-of-jail-free card. There's always more going on in the word salvation in the Bible than just simply being forgiven and not going to hell. So, for example, the Bible speaks about being saved, past tense. It talks about being saved, present tense, and it talks about shall be saved, future tense. Watch for these things. They're all over the place in the New Testament. And we actually have theological terms for each one of these. And in fact, isn't it interesting what Kevin DeYoung said this morning? I didn't time that. I didn't, you know, these, we sequence out these questions, these responsive readings 
Uh, they're just kind of auto, on autopilot. And it's almost like someone else planned this service this morning. Uh, like Amazing Grace didn't go with the question, but I guess it, anyway. So here it is. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. These are three words every Christian should know. And they should know what they mean. When God saves you, he justifies you, he sanctifies you, and he glorifies you. There's no such thing as a one-third Christian. This is true for every single believer ever, always. What happens when you're justified? Well, you're delivered from the penalty of sin. What happens when you're sanctified? You're delivered from the power of sin. What happens when you're glorified? You're delivered from the presence of sin. I never came up with these, by the way. But they're brilliant, aren't they? They're simple ways to think about them. Now, if you're, if you're thinking it through for just a minute, I bet you could figure this out, even if it's brand new to you, this idea. But which ones do you think are uh, singular events, and which ones do you think are ongoing events? All right, the first one. What is it? A singular event or an ongoing event? Singular, singular okay? The minute you um, surrender your life to Jesus Christ, like you heard about in the video today, God does something incredible. He takes through the little, littleness of your faith and that object of Jesus. He takes all of your sin, past, present, and future that deserves condemnation, all that sin that's birthed out of your sin nature. He transfers that over, over to Jesus, who's punished for it on the cross. And then he takes all the forever perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and transfers it to you forever, and it can't ever go away. You are immediately, instantaneously as righteous in the sight of God as if you were God's son himself. Justification. That ought to be enough, right? But then, the next one, sanctification. Do you think that's instantaneous or ongoing? There we go. Boy, you guys want to just close in prayer now? I mean, you, you know this stuff. So, yeah, it's ongoing. So God then takes that righteousness he's deposited in us and begins to work it out of us. We actually go from being declared righteous to starting to actually act righteous, right from the core of our being. And then the day that we're all just aching for, glorification. Instantaneous or ongoing? Uh, okay, it's a little tricky, isn't it? <laughs> it's instantaneous with ongoing, okay? There's coming a day. Some of us in, uh, have been with people in this room who've already experienced this. They have been delivered forever from the very presence of sin. All of that is involved in our salvation. So in Philippians chapter 2, the verse we read, we have to ask ourselves the question, is this talking about justification sanctification or glorification and i bet you can see from the verse work out it's speaking about sanctification in other words it's to use the words of james it's faith that leads to works that paul is talking about or to use the phrase in romans chapter 1 and romans chapter 16 what the book of romans starts and ends with it's called the obedience of faith faith obeying so all of those things are the same idea of work out your salvation. Or a famous verse in Ephesians chapter 2. Why don't you, if you've got a Bible, look at that. We'll get back to Philippians. But the book right before it, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For some of us, these are very familiar verses. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. We sang about that this morning. And by the way, you didn't do this. It wasn't your doing, it says. It's the gift of God. And it's not a result of your works. In case you didn't get it in verse 8, I'm going to repeat it again in verse 9. You, just know, you can't boast about your salvation. You can't take any credit for it. But don't stop at verse 9. That's justification that leads to verse 10. We are the workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So faith leads to works. That's what he's speaking about here when he speaks about working out your salvation. So then the question is, what are we working out? By the way, it should be obvious from what we've said already we are not working for our salvation. We are working out a salvation that's already been gifted to us, Ephesians chapter 2. And we're not obeying to be saved. We're actually obeying because we're saved. This is the brilliance of the Bible, unlike any other religion in the world. Uh, obedience is, is a result of something done, not a means to something. It's a result of already being saved. It's not a means to it. And interestingly, what's happening here in the book of Philippians is that the Philippians were obeying. They, they were obeying, but the external opposition, we read about that in chapter 1, external opposition and a sort of internal spirit of self-seeking were causing them to start plateauing in their obedience, which is why he says in Philippians 2 here, much more in my absence. Uh, don't just obey because I'm around cheering you, being your, your trainer at the gym. Even when the gym trainer isn't there, excel still more is the idea here. Uh, much like uh, a hike, uh, as it goes on and gets steeper, uh, there's a tendency to just sort of say, well, that's good enough. Uh, and, and, and what Paul is doing here in Philippians is he's pressing them forward. But here's where I want you to see a very, very important application, which comes from this word, your. Work out your salvation. The word your here is plural. Look, all of you Red Cedar people, work out your salvation. Let's work out our salvation. That's what I, I want to pivot you to. And, and why do I get that? Why do I think that's the primary idea here, the emphasis here? Well, let's look at what came before and let's look at what comes after this verse. All the way back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. What's the context here? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I can come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of all of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's speaking about them as a group. Stay on focus. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And he goes on down to chapter 2, which we've seen already. So don't, be, um, don't have rivalry or conceit. Instead, take all that you have in Christ, verse 1, and begin in great humility to, to be a, a conduit of that for each other. So the context, before we even get to verse 12 about working out your salvation. It's all about you as a community. What do you, it's all about you as a community. And then notice how, what happens right after uh, verse 12 and 13. 
do all things without grumbling or, or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. This is the cathedral we're aiming for, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain our labor in vain. Here they are, chapter 1, verse 27, striving side by side for the face of the gospel. They're, it's almost like the, the church is pictured as these immigrant invaders, these foreign invaders in a hostile world. We're really called that in First Peter, exiles. But we're not invading with weapons, military weapons. We're arm in arm, and guess what we have? We have shovels and hammers and saws. We have come to build. We have come to build something in this foreign territory where God is sending us to. We've come to build a resistance community. We are resisting the gravitational pull of the world, and we are building a rescue station where we are drawing people out of the incredible current to solid ground. That's the purpose of the church, every local church. So sanctification here, working out your salvation, is really not primarily about your personal holiness. Yes, that's a secondary idea here. It's actually about us as a community being what Eugene Peterson calls a subversive witness, a subversive witness to the people around us. Peterson puts it this way. The subversive works quietly and hiddenly, patiently. The subversive has committed himself to Christ's victory over culture and is willing to do these small things. No subversive ever does anything big. He's always carrying secret messages, planting suspicions that there is something beyond what the culture says is final. Don't you love that phrase? If we can develop a sense that sacrificial love, justice, and hope are at the core of our identities, then go to our jobs each day, to our families each night, that we are in fact subversives. You have to understand that the Christian subversion is nothing flashy. Subversives don't win battle. All they do is prepare the ground and change the mood just a little bit towards belief and hope so that when Christ appears, there are people waiting for him. Isn't that glorious? And by the way, there are many of you that day to day are subversives. You really are. But here's what happens to us, right? It's kind of like this uh, picture here. I don't know if you can see this here, but this is actually one of the, one of the trees, 200-year-old trees that's been cut down, milled. And here's this big old 60-some-odd-foot-long log they're putting away to dry for a year. Now, you imagine a guy who goes to the sawmill, because they do other things here than make a spire. You know, they're just a basic sawmill. And you ask uh, a guy, so what do you do? Uh, just going, getting up, going to work, cutting logs. Then you ask another guy, well, what do you do? I'm building a spire for a cathedral. Better. 
Then you ask another guy what he does. I'm restoring Notre Dame to its glory. They're all doing the same thing. But the third guy's doing it with a passion that everybody else wishes they had. And that's what happens. We, we lose that passion in the mundane, subversive witness of day-to-day life and ordinariness that never seems to be doing anything profound. And so Paul brings us to this place here and reminds us we are witnesses We are like lights shining out to a crooked world, he says in verse 15. It's our family mission. And we are called by God to persevere in this mission. In fact, this whole book of Philippians is honestly about nothing more than persevering joy. Philippians chapter 1, Paul uses himself as an example. He says, For me to live as Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, Even when I'm not there as your example, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In chapter 3, I count all things as loss in terms of this one goal, which is to know Christ and to know not only Christ, but even his sufferings. And in Philippians chapter 4, he ends it by saying, Everything you've seen and heard and learned in me, keep on practicing them. He's not shaming them. He's not rebuking them. He's just saying, I get it. I get how easy it is to plateau. I get how easy it is to just kind of barely hang in there and survive. And he's telling us to persevere. In in verse 12, he tells us, he says, not only to work out our salvation, he uses this other phrase, just as you've always obeyed. And if you see that word obeyed, it should pull you back to verse 8. Someone else obeyed, even to the point of death. He's calling us to obey beyond normal obedience. He's calling us to persevere into obedience that leads even to death. It's so easy, you know, to say, I'll serve this far, but no further. I'm willing to sacrifice myself for others, but only if they appreciate it and notice it and if there's reward. Can you imagine if Jesus thought that way? We wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be here today. So here's where I want to go. I just want to draw us into some application. Working out your salvation, this call to perseverance, should lead to something, a new word, Maybe for some of you, a word that I I want you to like. I want you to use it in a sentence with someone this week. Uh, Mortification. What a good old-fashioned word that needs to be restored. Mortification. And it comes from the passage that Dave read for us today from Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, why don't you look there again. Romans chapter 8. It doesn't actually use the word mortification, though I think the King James Version did. It's in, uh, I'll, I'll start in verse 12 of Romans 8, but the, the, the phrase is actually in verse 13. Verse 12 says, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. In other words, because you're now in Christ... Because you've given your life to Christ, and with it has come justification, sanctification, and glorification, power to resist sin. 
because you're in Christ, you don't, you're no longer obligated. Every time the sinful nature says to do something without Christ, get this, without Christ, every single time the sin nature asks you to do something, you perfectly obey it. You perfectly, it has that much power over us. But in Christ, you can resist it. That's what he's saying in verse 12. We are debtors not to the flesh. We're no longer under its slavery. Instead, verse 13, by the Spirit, we can mortify or put to death the deeds of the body. And that's how we live. That's how more life comes out of us. So to bring in an expert here, uh, John Owen, who was, uh, lived in the 1600s, wrote a beautiful book. You can still get it today. It's readable today. It took some work to get John Owen to be readable, but it's even, he's even more readable today. But the mortification of sin, and which, by the way, just as a commercial, these little Puritan paperbacks are glorious. These little Puritan paperbacks are like having an out-of-body experience going to another century and saying, whoa, these guys swam in the deep end of the pool. Um, so Owen says, unless obedience and diligence keep open the well of salvation, it becomes clogged as Philistines stopped up the wells of the Israelites. This occurs when indwelling sin, which we all have, clogs the soul, listen to these words, with careless indifference to the former apprehensions of divine love. This isn't just like suddenly committing spiritual adultery. This is like slowly allowing your white, hot, passionate heart to become lukewarm over the months and years and decades. Because the, wall, the, the well has gotten clogged bit by bit. And with moral negligence to the continuing thoughts of faith. So how does this work? Well, this is the beauty of it. God gives us these means of grace, things like listening to God's word, praying, coming to church, going to small groups, getting discipled by people, uh, giving financially. Yes, that's a means of grace, and I'm not a pastor just throwing that in. Uh, 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 not only, I mean, fasting, and by the way, fasting today, honestly, is probably better practice is not fasting from food, but fasting digitally. All of these disciplines, and there's many more, all of these ways, serving, all of these are means of grace. They're, they're liturgies, they're habits, they're rhythms. And it's almost like, and I know I've used this illustration before, but it just keeps working for me. How many of you remember, a few of you remember the... Karate Kid movie. You know, he taught him, didn't he? Karate by doing what? Wax on, wax off. Most of the Christian life is, what am I doing? What am I doing? It's all training. These means of grace, they're all training. This liturgy, these habits. And as we get used to these things, as these things wash through our mind and our souls, they sensitize us, they train us, and what we do is we count upon the Holy Spirit, if I can put it in this strange way, we count upon the Holy Spirit to zap our efforts so that they wither and weaken and put to death the underlying idolatries and sinful tendencies of our heart. 
talk about a core workout. This is your core workout mortification, okay? This is where you're constantly through these habits, retraining your love to come back to Christ again and again. So what does it look like? A little more specific, and we'll kind of wrap it up with these ideas here. Now, these are silly titles. I'll admit that right off the bat. Rapid kills, relentless kills, and resolve kill. But you know, a preacher has to do this to try to help you remember concepts. So take it for what it is. You can do better. Um, but here, here, here's these, these sinful tendencies that we have. What does it look like to kill them off? So let me give you an example, a rapid kill. This is where we are training our reactions. Uh, and I could probably give you examples from my life every week. So let me give you one from this past week. So someone shared a comment with me that I had been uh, cultivating a negative attitude. And, uh, and so my first reaction to that, that I was getting negative, my first reaction, uh, and by the way, I didn't react outside because it looks more noble if you react inside. Uh, so I, I, I just listened and went on. And then I, my first reaction was I got defensive. I got angry. That is so unfair. That is just so judgmental. Then a few minutes later, I had another reaction. You know, that person's opinion shouldn't matter that much to me. I mean, why, why does it matter so much, that person's opinion? Because, by the way, uh, for some of you, your opinion doesn't matter at all. I wish it did more, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but, but here's the problem. That's a little better than getting angry and defensive. But you know what? It's actually not all the way yet. Because when, I, when you tell yourself, well, their opinion shouldn't matter to me, what you're really doing is you're trying to push yourself away from them, and you're better than them. You're actually still kind of looking down on them, and you're actually deflecting, and you're not really dealing with the issue. And a few minutes later, thankfully, the Holy Spirit helped me have a third reaction. Lord, maybe there's some truth to that. Let me just, let me just hover over that for just a minute. Maybe... Maybe there's some truth, and then, and then it was like, this is you, isn't it, Lord? This is you, isn't it? And sure enough, it's the Lord just saying, I just want to gently brush off some dirt from your soul so that Christ can shine out of just a little bit more. So these reactions happen all the time. So then there's the issue of relentlessly killing something. And now we're not just talking about your reactions. We're talking about habitual sins, habitual sins like uh, over-speaking or under-speaking. Some of you are over-speakers. Some of you talk too much. Uh, some of you don't talk enough. Uh, overeating, you know, all kinds of things that we have. The list is long in this habitual sins. Uh, and uh, what you want to do here is the, the solution here is to consistently repent and keep strategizing. Do not give up fighting this problem in your life. And here I'm just going to let John Owen quote for us once again. He says, note where sin is strong and where grace is weak within you. How many never have peace of mind because of their grumbling spirit? How many render themselves useless in the world because of their irritability? How many deeply hurt themselves because of their gentleness and sensitivity? Become acquainted with your own heart. Though it is deep, probe it. Though it is obscure, search it. Though it deceives us, giving other names to its sickness, 
do not trust it. As he goes on to say, there's a traitor living in every one of our hearts. By the way, that, that's not who you are. Let me just be clear about that. You are someone beautiful in Christ. That's who you used to be, but who is still very present in you. So fight that traitor. That's the idea here. And, and here's the beautiful thing about this relentless kill thing about habitual sins. The goal is not victory over your habitual sins. It is consistency. It is consistency. God, in his mysterious purposes, may never let you have victory over your habitual sins. But he is glorified like crazy by your consistency. And then finally, there is just this whole idea of resolved kills. <laughs> now we're talking about deep-rooted dispositions in you. So let me just tell you about the person I know the most. Uh, for me, I have a tendency in life to be critical rather than grateful. Uh, I think I'll struggle with that till the day um, I die. I also have difficulty expressing affections and affirming people. And it would be so easy because I've tried so many times to make ma massive changes in this area of my life, it would be so easy to just say, you know what, that's just who I am. That's just me. Uh, deal with it. And by the way, I'm not talking about personalities here that you can't change. I'm talking about a blind spot in your life that every so often you know you have it. In fact, everybody else sees it so much better than you do. But it's a closet where you're hoarding darkness and you're not letting Jesus in because it overwhelms you and you're afraid of changing. And I say swing that door wide open to Jesus. Resist hopelessness. Resist unbelief in this area of your life. Be like Jonathan Edwards, the early American preacher, who when he was just, uh, I think he was about 15 or 16, when he came up with his list of resolutions. I have one of them on my wall in my office. Resolved that I will never give up, nor in the least slacken my fight against corruption, no matter how unsuccessful I may be. Resolved. You're just... It's like, you, it's like you have this massive oak tree growing in your heart, and all you've got is this little three-inch axe to which I say, every day take a swing at it. <laughs> Just every day take a swing at it. It's surprising how much you'll change in 60 years. Proverbs 24, verse 16, one of my favorite verses. The, righteous, uh, the wicked stumble in the day of calamity. The righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Or John Owen, yet again, do not allow your heart to be satisfied with a status quo for one moment. That's what mortification is. That's what mortification is. This work of salvation, perseveringly killing off anything in us before it becomes action outside of us. Anything that gets in the way of building this beautiful cathedral, this contrasting and attracting community of Christ, this city of God. I'm going to have the guys come forward, the worship team.
as always, I, I invite anybody here today, if you know Jesus as your Savior and King, this is the table he's created for you. This is the bread and cup for you, his body and blood. And here's the, here's the beautiful connection to what we're talking about that goes with this. Perseverance is not this sort of miserable, grinding out marathon where your body's just falling apart at lap 12, you know, or I mean mile 12 or 15. It is not this miserable, grinding out marathon. Salvation, particularly sanctification, is the experience of becoming increasingly more beautiful. It, it really is. You should actually see that in your life. You should see this inner deep change. You should see in one sense that you're becoming more whole, more human, more stunning, more Jesus-like. And all of that is possible because of what we celebrate here today. All of that is possible because of the perfect life Jesus lived for us, because of the costly death Christ paid for us, and because of the resurrection power that he has then transferred to us as well. And so, like Notre Dame, if you went up to it today, that cathedral in Paris, uh, it would look like it's still under massive remodeling, reconstruction. It's hard to imagine that going on inside of that has been hundreds of thousands of hours of work and so many were experts, and so much tedious labor over and over, and that inside it's becoming increasingly majestic and beautiful and displaying the glory of God all over again. It's exactly what's happening to us. We just can't see it all. And it's all because of the body and blood of Christ. So let that picture intensify our work of salvation. Let's take a moment and ready ourselves for the meal. Father, you are here right now. Your spirit is in us, empowering us. <clears throat> and you have promised us this amazing restorative, beautifying work of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And we come today to this bread and cup, this body and blood, recognizing that only because of that is all of this ours and is all of this guaranteed. May it empower our mortification